Welcome to this episode of My Journey as a Physicist. Each episode features an interview with a physicist to learn about their work, their interest outside of physics, and their professional journey of how they ended up where they are today. Season 3 features physicists involved in the long-range plan for nuclear science. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome, Grigory Rogachev. It's great to have you. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, it is a pleasure. And uh, yes, my name is Grigory Rogachev. I'm a professor of nuclear physics at the at Texas NDEM University, and uh, I'm also a member of the Cyclotron Institute. Texas NDEM University has a cyclotron facility, and so I'm a member of the Cyclotron Institute. Before that, uh, I was a faculty member at uh, Florida State uh, University, and before that, uh, I was a postdoc and a research professor at the University of Notre Dame. Can you give us some idea of what your research is about? So I'm focusing on uh, experimental uh, nuclear physics, in particular low energy experimental nuclear physics. Essentially, it uh, has to do with studying a structure of atomic nuclei. Nuclei, which are at the heart of every Every atom, they consist of protons and neutrons, and our job as nuclear physicists is to understand what binds them together, what force binds them together, what phenomena emerge when we put together all those nucleons, what is the structure of every nuclear. Can we predict that structure from basic principles? Do we have an understanding? So benchmarking theoretical predictions on nuclear structure is an important part uh, of what I do. Also I study nuclear reactions, which are important not only for fundamental understanding, Standing, but also they are important for applications. They are such as uh, such as uh, nuclear power, for example, and many other applications. And also there is a question of origin of chemical elements, how they form. And of course, they form, as we now know, in chain of nuclear transmutations, nuclear reactions that are happening in, ter- in the interiors of stars. And it's job of nuclear physicists to understand how exactly that happens. So origin of chemical elements in the universe is the question that we're also trying to answer as nuclear physics community. Yeah, that's really cool. We, I think everyone loves nuclear physics. Maybe as a you know, follow-up, could you talk a little bit about if you're on any experiments or, you know, you said you're in the uh, cyclotron center. Yeah, anything like that, that what experimental nuclear research entails. Let's focus on astrophysics part, right? So there are a no- number of nuclear reactions that are very important for our understanding of processes of of nuclear synthesis processes in stars. We we need to measure those reactions experimentally so that we have the understanding of the reaction rates. And those are important input parameters into our modeling of uh, stellar processes, uh, processes that are happening in stellar environment, nuclear synthesis processes. And studying those reactions is very challenging because in some cases, especially in explosive environments like supernova explosion, the, the process is very fast and a nuclear reaction on uh, radioactive nuclei play a very important role. So we have to find a way to measure reactions, nuclear reactions with those radioactive nuclei. And this is part of what I do. And we do this at the Cyclotron Institute. And of course, you at Michigan State University, uh, you have a factory for isotope beams. And this is the premier nuclear physics facility that produces, or in the world, produces radioactive beams that are used to study, in in particular, uh, nuclear synthesis in in stellar environment, in stars. Yeah, that's really cool. And I I know that's like one of the big questions is, you know, where do these elements come from? (laughs) 
Right, right. Yeah. Another big question is what is the limit of uh, stability when you add more and more neutrons to, to nuclei, they become unstable uh, and unbound eventually. So the question is, where is this boundary? Where is the border? Uh, how many neutrons we can add? And that's uh, for various isotopes. And that's very much open question. And it turns out that uh, nuclear structure becomes quite different when you uh, move away from stable nuclei that are mostly have the same number of protons and neutrons. When you overload nucleus with more and more and more neutrons, well, different phenomena emerge, different structures, different decay modes. It gets really exciting. And then we ask ourselves, well, do we really understand? Uh, what has happened over there and you know oftentimes we we don't right <laughs> so it's, it's very interesting and we we really need to of course benchmark all uh, the theoretical predictions experimentally to get that understanding yeah that's really cool could you explain what a typical day is like for you if you do any teaching in between this research yes yes i i certainly teach and um i also do a lot of administration as well as the department head so my typical day usually in the morning i uh, get ready for for lectures I, I teach three times a, a week and uh, then also before lunch I usually do a lot of administrative work and then I try uh, after lunch I try to focus on my research it is not always possible but but uh, so, so sometimes it is and uh, when I do research of course I write papers proposals I work with my students to analyze the data students and postdocs and the research scientists in my group so we have a lot of discussions we have group meetings uh, we plan for new projects you know we simultaneously have like 15 projects uh, going at the same time pretty much and uh, so it takes a lot of coordination to get that running in my uh, previous days as, as a graduate student and postdoc and research scientist, I did a lot of analysis of the experimental data and I can do it less and less these days. So I rely on postdocs and graduate students uh, to, to dig in and do the actual hard work of uh, data analysis and putting together the experimental setups uh, as well. This is quite time consuming, both of these activities. And sometimes it takes years to get the results from a single experiment. Yeah, that sounds like a busy day. <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh, so you said you're the department head. So uh, how long have you been department head and, you know, what drew you to that role? <laughs> well, uh, it's almost by, by accident. I did not yeah. expect that. I was drafted. <laughs> so and uh, so it's been four years. Yes. And uh, unfortunately, the it requires a lot of attention. Yeah, I've kind of heard that's how it is. <laughs> Moving on from that, could you explain what your roles on the uh, long-range plan are and specifically explain it at a level that, you know, undergraduates or graduate students may understand? Yeah. So first of all, let me say what the long-range plan process is. There is a tradition in nuclear physics community to get together once in seven years, approximately, and discuss future plans. By future, we mean the next 10 years. So this is what happened in mid-November of this year, 2022. So the nuclear physics community got together. We discuss our future plans. And in nuclear physics, there are several big divisions, and one subdivision is is uh, low energy uh, nuclear physics and within that division low energy nuclear physics there is a subdivision of nuclear structure reactions and nuclear astrophysics 
And that was the subject matter uh, of the uh, town hall meeting that happened in mid-November. And my role was to uh, be one of the co-conveners. Uh, we, we had absolutely exceptional team. My other team members as co-conveners are uh, Alexandra Gade, who is a Michigan State University professor, a free professor, and uh, also Sophia Quaglioni from Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and Rebecca Sorman from University of Notre Dame. And uh, I have to say that I, I enjoyed greatly uh, working with them. This is like, except we were exceptional team, I think. So, and uh, so our job was to put together the meeting to make sure that it runs smoothly. So we organized the work groups by themes. We, we uh, gave them the assignments. And uh, so the work groups uh, discussed specific issues and uh, provided the feedback. And uh, the result of this feedback and the overall discussion will be the white paper that we are now responsible for producing. Yeah, that's interesting. Could you explain maybe what happened at the particular town hall meeting and any of the the big ideas that came out of it uh, the, the what happens is that uh, we have uh, lots of uh, discussions we, we have presentations plenary we had plenary presentations during the first day that's uh, sort of um, gave the broad picture of what happened over the developments of the last seven years and then discuss a little bit how the future may look like and then the second day was that uh, there was uh, uh, there were discussions within the work group, so we split participants, of which we, by the way, we had 500 participants. Those were split into several work groups. Uh, by several, I mean 12 specifically. Uh, so we had 12 different work groups. Uh, lots of questions were discussed, how we move forward as the community. The discussion was not only focused on nuclear structure, nuclear reactions, and nuclear astrophysics, but it also touched things like computing and, of course, theoretical developments, computing, quantum computing, isotope science. We discussed production of isotopes for medical applications, for uh, industrial applications, and for basic science as well. We talked about uh, nuclear data and discussed the need of nuclear data and of course we discussed workforce development we touched on diversity issues in nuclear science and we talked about facilities accelerators equipment and what the future needs of the community are right so th this was a very comprehensive discussion and uh, there are number of recommendations that came out and uh, we call them resolutions so the, those resolutions were broadly discussed uh, with the community and everyone essentially participated in writing those resolutions. And uh, those are those are now available on the website designated to this town hall meeting. But I, I can tell you that the resolution number one was that nuclear physics community in the United States uh, had seen a lot of very good recent investments. Every facility certainly won. And the resolution number one is to uh, capitalize on uh, those investments and to make sure that we prepare the workforce and uh, work on preparing the workforce to realize the potential that those investments provided so both on theoretical side and experimental side yeah i keep hearing about you know capitalize on EFRIB, really that could you maybe even explain a little more detail on what it means to capitalize on our facilities well, of course it means that we, we first of all we have to run them efficiently and perform the groundbreaking experiments so do groundbreaking science that's what uh, what we as a community are determined to do 
to do the groundbreaking science. And th that is the main focus. But it's not just AFRIP. There are many other facilities existing. And there are two user facilities. So AFRIP is one user facility. Another is Atlas at Argon National Laboratory. And also there are the there are several facilities that we call Aruna facilities. And those are university-based research labs, also have accelerators, often unique programs and unique capabilities. And uh, the nuclear physics community uh, stands behind and strongly supports those facilities as well. They, they also do groundbreaking science and prepare workforce. So you said you called FRIB and the other facilities uh, user facilities. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe explain why are they called user facilities? Yeah, of course. The user facilities, they have program advisory committees. And so everyone in nuclear physics community can submit proposals to run their experiments at those facilities. So at AFRIP, for example, not only Michigan State University faculty run experiments there, but also faculty from every other nuclear low, low energy nuclear physics group around the country. And to do that, you, you submit a proposal to the program advisory committee. Program advisory committee gets together, considers your proposal on uh, merits and can recommend or not these experiments. And of course, user facilities, Atlas and AFRIP, and in low energy nuclear physics, we only have two user facilities, AFRIP and Atlas. They are oversubscribed uh, by, by like a factor of three or four. And for AFRIP, it may be, I don't know, I don't have exact number, it may be a factor of 10. <laughs> over subscription, right? So those facilities are in huge demand. Aruna facilities that are university-based facilities, they operate differently. They normally do not have program advisory committees. Mostly faculty who are within those institutions run experiments there, but that's not exclusively the case. So we, so those facilities also welcome collaborations. Faculty from, from other institutions can also initiate a research program or research programs at the, the, those facilities as well. But there is no formal process in which you submit a proposal, you have formal program advisory committee, and, and, and so on and so forth. So we don't have that. Right? But we, because I also belong to Aruna facility, Texas A&M is Aruna facility. That's why there is a distinction between user facilities mm -hmm. and not user facility. Yeah, that definitely helps. <laughs> Maybe one more question about the long range plan. Yeah, there's four conveners of the town halls. Do you like share work equally over everything or did you have a specific target of you know some of the topics for the town hall so well, we, yes we, we tried to share work i wouldn't say equally i think my peers did way more than i did so yeah we tried to share the the workload and of course we, we have our own areas of expertise and to some extent some divisions were very natural but also logistically due, during the meeting we assigned special roles for you know, each other so that we to, to make sure that the meeting runs smoothly and we cover everything uh, we need to cover. That's interesting. Yeah, so I think that's about all the questions about the long-range plan that I have. So moving on to the kind of personal questions, when and how did you decide to become a physicist? No, <laughs> well, almost by accident. Actually, I wanted to be an IT specialist, programmer. <laughs> and <clears throat> so that that that's, that was my dream in high school. But then I, I uh, had a high school buddy who was interested in physics at the time. And he convinced me that physics is more interesting. So basically, he convinced me, well, go with me, uh, do physics together. And this is how I ended up in uh, Moscow Engineering Physics Institute in Moscow, Russia. So the funny thing is that I became physicist and he 
actually now is IT specialist working for Oracle in California. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> um, so, but we're still we're good friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe a question I missed out on was maybe not only, so you, you said how you decided to become a physicist, but could you maybe give like a, like a brief biography of, you said you decided in high school, you ended up at Moscow, um, Engineering, engineering, physics. yeah, thank you. And then, you know, where did you get your PhD and all that yeah, stuff sure. and postdoc sure. positions? So uh, after graduation from Moscow Engineering Physics Institute, came to a Russian Research Center, Korchatov Institute. It's also in Moscow. And uh, in Korchatov Institute, I. Uh, met absolutely wonderful advisor, Professor Goldberg, who was my mentor. And I would say he still is <laughs> my mentor. And uh, we communicate a lot to this day. So it's it's really because of him, uh, I, I really fell in love in, with nuclear physics. And certainly because of him stayed in nuclear physics, because at the time I had other opportunities, which I considered seriously and I decided against them <laughs> and stayed in nuclear physics. Because it's just so exhilarating. You know, when you when you start doing experiments and then you see the results and it, it's just so exciting, especially if you're doing something new. So it, it's just it's just unbelievable feeling, you know, when you do the measurement and you realize that you learn something that hasn't been known before you've done that. Mm -hmm. So that is really exciting part. So that hooks you. And so this is why I stayed in physics. I just couldn't couldn't let that feeling go. <laughs> was very nice. So, and after that, I, after getting my PhD, Kurchatov Institute, Russian Research Center, Kurchatov Institute, I went to University of Notre Dame, first as a, a postdoctoral research associate, working in a group of Professor Kalata. Then I became assistant research professor, uh, research, it's called research assistant professor at uh, University of Notre Dame, uh, working in group of Professor Abrahamian. But by the way, who is now chairing the committee for the long-range plan, uh, Professor mm -hmm. Abrahamian. Uh, from University of Notre Dame. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and after that, Florida State University hired me as assistant professor. I stayed there for almost 10 years, and it was nine years. And then I moved to uh, Texas A&M University. So th and this is where, where I am now. <laughs> was there a reason why you moved from Florida to Texas? Oh, yes, uh, the, there was. The facility was the primary reason. So the facility at uh, Texas A&M University provided uh, more opportunity for, for my research in particular. At the time, I was uh, looking for, uh, I was looking into structure of light, very exotic nuclei, and I still do this physics, and one needs higher energy to do it more efficiently. And Texas A&M University is the higher energy facility than Florida State uh, facility. It was basically a facility related. Yeah, it's very interesting and it sounds like a interesting path from point A to point B. I guess maybe another question is uh, what brought you to America from Russia? Uh, well, I was hired as postdoc. So science is an international community. And when, well, as soon as I get my PhD, Professor Kalata from University of Notre Dame offered me a postdoc job, which I gladly accepted at the time because these scientific opportunities at University of Notre Dame were uncomparably better than the, the opportunities at Kurchatov Institute at the time, certainly. And and still, the, the I would say the same to this day for my field, for, for low energy nuclear physics, it is definitely the case. That's very interesting. I like to hear about all the different stories that people have. Of and, and, you know, it, it was the case when I came there, but since then, University of Notre Dame expanded its operations, built new accelerators, built 
lot of new setups to do experiments. And it, it's really very exciting place. So University of Notre Dame is one of the major pillars of nuclear physics community in the US. Yeah, that's always interesting because it's kind of the universities that I personally wouldn't expect ends up, you know, really big in respective fields of research like MSU here. Before I knew about AFRIB and everything, I'm like, oh, it's just Michigan State. It's not, you know, it's not MIT or Harvard or whatever, but it seems like it's these schools that really have it going on. Well, Michigan State University is better in nuclear physics based on the, you know, on this rankings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in nuclear physics, Michigan State University is number one. <laughs> yeah, well... Thanks for sharing those uh, that story. The biography is definitely interesting. It's not really an explicit question that is always asked on the interviews. Beyond that, could you talk about what you do to relax on you know a typical day or weekend? Well, I I like reading very much. Unfortunately, I don't get much time for reading, but I really love that. I play tennis these days. Don't have that much time to do that. And golf <laughs> is also my passion. Mm -hmm. both playing and watching. Do you have a favorite book? Yes, I do. It's Dostoevsky, Idiot. I don't think I've ever heard of that one. <laughs> I need to write that down. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting book. Yeah. What what got you into tennis and golf, respectively? Well, I, I played tennis from my childhood, so I just, you know, <laughs> I love the, the, the game. And uh, golf is, is more recent, you know, the, there aren't many golf courses in, in Russia from originally. So it's, it's only here in the United States that we have luxury of having lots of great, absolutely great golf courses. Beyond that, what advice could you give to uh, students and young researchers that you might have? Well, the, the, the students in general try to find the, the things that you love doing. I, I think that's the key. If you love what you're doing, then, you know, everything will fall into places and uh, the, don't expect that it will be easy. <laughs> the interest, interesting things are always hard. I think that's why we should do that because they're hard. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Well, it was a very nice uh, well, interview, and I thank you for inviting me uh, for this interview. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. This podcast was created by Brian Stanley and Professor Hui Huin Lin. Season 3 was interviewed by Bill Good and edited by Vara Lee Sikorkar. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.